This is an ABC podcast. The History Lesson. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley. Today on The History Lesson, an epic sporting adventure at breakneck speed, non-stop, halfway across the planet. Probably still stands as being the definitive long-distance motor race in the world. A motorsport marathon for amateurs and professionals, taking on the world's most remote and dangerous roads. Then in the lights of the car, we saw the glint of some sort of machete. Aussies, Brits, Europeans, Americans, hurtling through uncharted territory and driving on the edge. No safety fences, virtually one car wide. It was dangerous all the way. The whole thing was stupid speed everywhere. James Viver takes the wheel in the 1968 London to Sydney Marathon. An event like this had never been done before. Competitors would take the wheel in London and attempt to race non-stop all the way to Sydney. The route was unprecedented in both difficulty and distance. It would go through France, Italy, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, then after a sea voyage, right across Australia. The marathon was a rolling advertisement, primarily for the British motor industry, but also to sell newspapers for co-sponsors the Daily Express in London and the Daily Telegraph in Sydney. John Smales travelled along with the marathon in 68 as a journalist for The Telegraph and has since written a history of the race. At the top end of the field, you're talking about racing drivers. Racing drivers are not normal people and they don't drive at normal speed. The Citroen team, for example, had worked out that they could change drivers at 200 kilometres an hour without stopping the car. The only way you were going to win a marathon was to drive at that level the whole way. The marathon would be split up into sections by a series of checkpoints called controls. Each section would have a demanding and strictly managed time limit. For every minute over time, cars would lose a point. Whoever made it to Sydney, having lost the least amount of points, would win the race. This meant driving at the highest speed possible for the entire route. Everyone recognised that this was probably the most dangerous adventure that they'd ever undertaken. Anyone who went in the marathon was a hero, seriously. It's a hot and sticky summer's day on the north shore of Sydney, and I'm being taken for a spin in Jerry Lister's 50-year-old Volvo 144S. I won't hit anything, that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not worried. Inside, there are timing instruments built into the black dashboard, five-point racing harnesses and a sturdy roll cage. Well, as far as I can see, you never forget how to drive quickly. I don't. I love it. There's a fantastic smell of oil and machinery. The studded rally tyres hum loudly as they hit the bitumen. This car is just a genius. Jerry and loves this car. Why wouldn't he? Still is. In 1968, oh, it took him and his co-driver, Andre Walinski, all the way from London to Sydney. The whole event just did everything right. It did everything it was asked for. And it was totally reliable, and it's still totally reliable. Jerry and his Volvo were part of a three-car Amico Australia-sponsored team. Max Winkless was also on the Amico team, behind the wheel of a similar Volvo to Jerry's. 
we definitely went out to win the rally. We weren't just going to compete in it, we wanted to win it. I wouldn't say it was even for the money, it was for the glory of winning the rally because that was what we're always about. Max teamed up with John Kerrin, another rally champion, and set about preparing for the race. We're in touch with NASA about diets, so they gave us some good advice. John and I did two runs non-stop from Sydney to Perth and back to Sydney again. We were very, very competitive. We knew we could win that rally. We, you know, we had the ability to do it. We were all set to go. So Frank Packer had decided to enter Daily Telegraph cars into the race, including an all-female team made up of columnist Minnie McDonald, women's editor Eileen Wesley, and her close friend, Jenny Gates. We had no idea what we were in for. We had absolutely no idea what rallying was about. So, you know, ignorance was bliss. On hearing about the women's team, some male journalists outside of the Telegraph doubted whether three women could complete such a tough race, giving Jenny and the team some extra motivation. It did raise the hackles on our back. It was up yours, really. Meantime, in London, businesswoman Elsie Gadd had recruited two professional female racing drivers and entered the marathon in a Volvo 145S. Anthea Castell had jumped at the chance to be navigator in this chunky family station wagon, despite Elsie's apparent shortcomings when it came to preparing for a rally. She had a bull bar. That was about as much preparation. We did have an extra fuel tank and spare wheels and tyres on the roof. Then there was this rather quirky little coffin that went in the back. They took out one of the back seats and put this wooden coffin-like thing, and the idea was that the fourth person would get some sleep. As it transpired, this was all completely the wrong car for the job. November the 24th, 1968. 80,000 people crowded to London's Crystal Palace circuit to see the start of the Daily Express London to Sydney Marathon. Fords, Holdens, Citroens, Porsches, Hillmans, Austins, Moscovitches, Mercedes and more take to the starting ramp. There was just under 17,000 kilometres of road to be covered in just over 10 days. One of the longest, toughest and richest rallies of all time. You couldn't go north because the Cold War was on at the time. Go south and the Suez Canal was again shut and people were shooting each other down there. So there was only one narrow path of opportunity straight through the middle. Halfway across the world to Bombay. Elite drivers with huge logistical backing, amateurs with zero experience. All with the adventure of a lifetime before them. shock and horror when they first got on the marathon because they couldn't believe how quickly the thing was going. Race historian John Smales. People who had signed up with the expectation that this was going to be a jolly adventure suddenly discovered that they were going faster than they'd ever gone in their lives and having to keep up. In the Amoco Volvo, the task ahead was beginning to hit Jerry Lister. I'd never done rallying before, so uh, I was sick to my stomach with nerves. You couldn't relax for a minute because you didn't know what was around the corner. We had the instruction, but they can't tell you everything. They can only tell you where to go. And just hours into the race, Anthea soon made an unwelcome discovery about her team leader, Elsie Gatt. 
she was terribly car sick. She didn't sleep and she didn't eat and she couldn't drink because she just brought it all up again. And she was so sick. When she got out of the car to sign in the control, we passed to the form and when we turned around, she was flat on the ground. She passed out completely. After that, she didn't drive. She was going to be a liability. The race progressed without any real trouble across the smooth highways of Europe, with teams mostly making control points fairly easily. Until Max Winkless reached Yugoslavia. There was a little tinkle, 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 and a lovely big cloud of smoke out the back of the car, and then crash, crash, the engine stopped. It was kaput. Eager to keep his Volvo in the race, Max tried to fix the car on the side of the road. We had up on jacks and it'd shake every time a truck would go by. I thought to myself, Max, what a stupid old man you are. I mean, you've got a beautiful wife and four kids at home. What the hell are you doing here? Having been so confident at the start, Max was almost certainly out of the rally on just the third day. We weren't meant to win that rally, that was for sure. In Jerry Lister's Volvo, co-driver Andre Walinski was behind the wheel. I gave my co-driver a chance to just drive to give me a rest and I navigated, calling him instructions. And down at the bottom of this long run was a left-right over a train line. I warned him all the way down to it and he didn't take terribly much notice of me. And we arrived there, couldn't make the corner around it, so straight ahead into this mound. And at that point, I realised he couldn't drive. And uh, I thought, I've got to drive all the way. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But I did restrict him to the quiet stuff. No competitive stuff, because he would have killed us. Lovely bloke. Loved him, but he would have killed us. Over in the Morris 1100, Jenny Gates was taking it steady through the mountain roads of Bulgaria. I went to break, going around a corner, and my foot went straight to the floor. And I remember thinking, Minnie was navigating, I mustn't alarm her. So I said, Minnie, um, do you remember when you were told if the brakes failed, what you did, how you went down through the gears? I remember you telling me. Would you like to tell me, you know, show me? So I learned as we went through the Bulgarian mountains, and she was a good instructor. She told me how to go down through the gears. I became expert. I know there's something about when you're in that situation, you just become, matter of fact, you've got to get on with it. I mean, what was the alternative? Back in Yugoslavia, just when Max thought he was out of the race, a miracle appeared, driving a Volvo. And it was these two people that were down there to service Volvo trucks. You know, they were two truck mechanics. They'd heard that we were missing and they were looking for us. They actually towed us back to Belgrade, to the Yugoslav Atomic Energy Commission, and we got permission to take the engine from their car and put it into our car. These mechanics there, they took the whole thing over. They lifted the engine out of the Volvo car, put it into my car, we got it all tuned up. And I think all told, including the failure, we lost 26 hours and we're back on the road again. With a straying horse. Istanbul was reached before dawn and some of the competitors snatched 40 winks on a hotel floor. On roads like these. So long as the crews could keep awake, there seemed to be nothing that would stop them. How do you keep going for a long time, Don? Um, well, a couple of the old pet pills now and again. 
The race had now crossed Europe, and along with mechanical problems, drivers were also starting to wear out. Drivers had now been up and driving for 48 hours non-stop. Fatigue was setting in big time. No one objected to there being wakey-wakey pills inside the motorcars. People were quite used to this as a concept. They're an amphetamine of some form or other. Indescribable. How tired you can be every sunrise, every sunset, you see them. And in between you might get an hour here and an hour there. Desperately tired. But we all wound up and had a job to do. We had to get to the other end as best as possible. You almost end up on a high because you're absolutely using every bit of your body and your mind, running on adrenaline. Mm. You almost forgot to be scared. Battling tiredness, drivers were now faced with the first technical stages as they entered Turkey and their long trek across Asia. When we got to Istanbul, it was so different from Europe. We felt that we were very much on our own in the sense there was none of the European things like petrol stations, the roads were not made up. Yeah, it was a different kettle of fish and I suppose it wasn't going to be a jaunt. And as we were seeing these other marathon cars that had been mangled on the side of the road, that brought it home that perhaps what we were doing could become dangerous. You know, that could have been us. And it wasn't long before Jerry came across a nasty road hazard. It was a bog. It was pure mud. And there were a whole lot of cars in there. And that's where the young fellow was crawling under his voxel and the car sank down on the mud and not on his head. He was a very sick boy. They had to keep him in the car because if you didn't have all your crew that started with, you couldn't get on the boat to Sydney. They actually forced a bash hat on his head because his head was damaged. And it was, the blood in his eyes was virtually black. And, uh, yeah, that was a bit sort of frightening. It was dangerous because you didn't know what Turkey was going to be like. The mountain roads there, no safety fences, no nothing, virtually one car wide. It was dangerous all the way. Heart in the mouth bit, but you had to bat on. From there, it was a case of moving across into Iran. The roads was loose gravel, so you could lose corners and bends quite easily, like driving on ball bearings. 1,300 miles between Tehran and Kabul in just under 24 hours, at an average speed of 70 miles an hour. It was then that we realised that things were not going to go well with this car, loaded the way it was. Afghanistan had one sealed highway running right across the country. This is the 14,000 foot high Latiban Pass in Afghanistan. It was the hardest road anyone had driven. It was just a goat truck. And with the road never wider than 15 feet, it's going to be virtually impossible. The river down the bottom was just a thin line and we were going through there at stupid speed. The whole thing was stupid speed everywhere. I can remember the headlights hitting the cliff in front, so you realise there was a big gorge perhaps down below. But it looks the same story. We were on a, a mission. In Kabul, they have their only official stop during the whole trip. It's a six-hour wait during the night while the Khyber Pass is closed because of bandits. At the back of the pack, Jenny and the team in the Morris were too late to cross the Khyber Pass in daylight. So, gingerly, they set off into the night. On the way, there was a log across the road. OK, well, maybe it's some sort of, I don't know, customs thing. 
But then in the lights of the car, we saw this fellow, you know, he, he was a tribesman, but we saw the glint of some sort of machetes or something. We twigged that, that it wasn't an official halting spot. Firstly, we didn't know they were going to roll the log back and let us go, and all we could see were these very shiny weapons. There was nothing to stop them trying to get us out of that car and stealing our passports and whatever and leaving us on the side of the road. So we just had the window down a tiny, tiny bit and were saying rally car, rally car, and finally they twigged that, you know, if they did anything to us or stole anything from us, there would be people who would come after them. That was very, very scary. The race dashed across Pakistan in just a day, crossing into India, where they would be met with a whole new danger entirely. Hordes of people everywhere, daylight, you know, night time. Some of the drivers, for example, worked out that if they opened their doors like a big bird, uh, the people would step back. And the police are armed with batons and they're forcing them back. You would have to drive your car into what was a wall of people because they were just everywhere. One woman fell down behind my car. I said, oh my God. The race had reached Bombay, where cars would board the ship to Fremantle, but only the first 70 would be given a berth. Jenny and her team had made the cut. So had Anthea in the station wagon. Jerry was in the top 20, and somehow Max had made up the 26-hour gap and claimed a spot on board too. Ahead of the teams was a nine-day voyage to Australia, which, in 1968, was a pretty foreign place to many of the European drivers, something the Aussies took full advantage of. The Australians went into major sledging mode. And as far as they were concerned, they were going to talk these poms out of ever being able to drive across Australia by scaring the living daylights out of them. Telling them the kangaroos were all seven foot tall and, and when you hit them, they came through the windscreen and they tore your throat out with their back claws. <laughs> yeah, we contributed to it as well. Absolutely, yeah, they were monsters. <laughs> Went on and on and the poor, the poor old pommies and the others, eyes like this, I was terrified. And you could see on their faces that they didn't know whether to believe us or not. I think they felt, well, you know, we'd better be on the side of believing it, just in case. With the tall stories told, the race set off from Fremantle to cross the continent. There were five and a half thousand kilometres to be covered in just 67 hours. Race historian John Smales. Contemplate that. That's 85 kilometres an hour, non-stop, right across Australia driving some of the best rally roads that we have in this country. Cars meandered across the vast, empty expanses of Western Australia, taking in the now infamous path across the Nullarbor, which in 1968 was unsealed. The road was unbelievably bad. Amoco Volvo driver, Jerry Lister. Nothing that we did before that was that bad. A road that I believe hadn't been driven on for some years uh, and, and it didn't get any better from there. It was long and hard 
and huge clouds of dust. You know, you're just driving through dust non-stop. Potholes virtually big enough to swallow a car. You, you know, you didn't know they were there because the bull dust tended to fill them up. In places there was no road. We were following tracks that other cars had made through the bush to pick up the road somewhere else. That was horrific. Because we're doing 110, 115 mile an hour. Yeah, all the way. The distance covered, combined with the harsh Australian conditions, had left both Anthea Castell and the Volvo station wagon in very bad shape. The door pillars had cracks, I should think, four or five inches long. If you stood at the back of the car and looked at it, you could see the whole thing was bowing out at the sides. Had no wing mirrors. Windscreen had been smashed. Somebody had thrown a rock through it. The back doors didn't open, so we had to climb through the front and over the seats to get in the back. Nothing fitted, so the air and the dust was just filling the car. We'd got a hole in the um, exhaust, so the fumes were coming in, which was awful. I kept filling that up with chewing gum. I had nosebleeds because of the dry air and the dust, bloodshot eyes, cracked lips. Going across Australia, I think, the worst part of the whole thing. In his rally spec Volvo, Max Winkless could see the trouble Anthea's team was in. Started following them a bit. Our concern was that the chassis would break right in halves, you know, and they mightn't even get to the finish. That was that sick. Out of the competitive running, and sensing a promotional opportunity for Amico and his Volvo dealership back in Sydney, Max formed an unlikely partnership. I had to put it to John and said, listen, we're not going to win the rally, mate. Let's help these girls see them through to the end. They were like long-lost friends, really, that came to the rescue. Max's Volvo would now act as the support crew for Anthea's car. The two Volvos formed a convoy, making steady progress into South Australia and into the Flinders Ranges, until the battery of the station wagon shook free, starting a fire under the bonnet. And because we lost all the electrics, so now there was no lights, no wipers, absolutely nothing. And I must say, I thought at that point that was it. The race tracked across the rough country roads of western New South Wales, then south into Victoria and the Australian Alps. As Jenny and the team in the Morris entered the final stages, they came across help of another kind. There were women there with shampoo and buckets of hot and cold water to wash our hair. And how lovely was that? With shampoo and the water, because they knew where girls you know, would be very dusty. It was just beautiful. Now, with less than 24 hours and just a handful of stages remaining, drivers were making their last big push for the line. Who would pass on the twisting tracks of the big country track high in the mountains northeast of Cooma? In 15 miles, there were 300 bends. Bianchi was to be involved in a head-on collision with a private Mini coming the other way up the road. Through the Australian Alps that night, even today, the event is regarded as probably the best night of extraordinary rallying that's ever occurred in the world. When I pulled up to the control at the bottom, the, the guys at the table hooking us in, they were lit up by my brakes. They were bright red from all that braking. The drivers just rushed through as, as people suddenly had the red mist descend and they were just going for it. The winner of the event would be determined on the last night of the event. 
In a frenetic dash to the finish, Scottish driver Andrew Cowan and his co-drivers Colin Malkin and Brian Coyle had won the race in a Hillman Hunter. After 10 days of racing and almost 17,000 kilometers, the winning margin was just six minutes. Competitors paraded through the center of Sydney, welcomed by tens of thousands of well-wishers. Drivers sat on top of their cars, drinking champagne. Among them, Jenny and the team in the Morris. They'd made it, but only just, coming in with 30 minutes to spare before the disqualification cutoff time. It was euphoria that we had actually made it. Jenny had finished, in 50th place, but finished nonetheless. Something many professionals didn't manage. She'd also fallen in love with her car. Yes, well, it was our home for that time, and it got us here. This darling little car just kept pushing along, and no help from us. My son, he seems to think that I was a hero back then. Yeah, I guess he loves the fact that his mum did something pretty unusual. And what about the Elsie Gad Volvo station wagon? Had Max managed to coax Anthea and the team to Sydney? Uh, well, the first thing I did when I got to Sydney, I went out for supper and had a dozen oysters. Since it was about 40 years after the rally that my father died and clearing out the books and so on in his office, and I found a scrapbook that he'd kept with all the press cuttings. Since then I've had oysters every single day. <laughs> oh dear. And with the, the advent of small portable tape recorders, I decided to make a tape instead of write to him. And I came across the tape that I'd sent him. live it up a bit, you know, I mean... The state of the car, it was a, nothing short of a miracle, really, that we did make it. There was nothing left of the car. It was absolutely shocking. It was in a terrible state. Not only had Anthea made it, they were the first women's team into Sydney, winning $200 in the process. We were flat keeping up with... Now, they were, they were bloody good drivers, mate, no doubt. Max had placed second last, but he'd shepherded Anthea's team to victory. If we hadn't have helped them, I can tell you they would not have finished. Max finished up his rally career not long after the London to Sydney, taking up long-distance sailing instead. But every so often, even at 90, the racing bug bites again. I was just invited to drive from Vladivostok to Moscow with a guy. What'd you say? No, I'd love to. I, really, I would really love to, but I know that I'm a bit over that. Jerry Lister and his Volvo placed 13th among Europe and Australia's racing elite. An incredible effort for a rally novice. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, before or since then. The countries that you can't even go through anymore, and we were going through at 120 miles an hour. At the Sadive showground, first Sunday of every month, 8 a.m., they have a car some coffee, and it's amazing the people that walk up to you to talk to you that remember when, I, when this came to Sydney. People think you're mad when you race and rally motor cars, but if, you know, if you can drive a bit and you've got a good car under you, you never want to get out.
the London to Sydney Marathon was produced by James Fiver with sound designed by Tim Simons. And if you'd like to see what a 1960s rally Volvo looks like, there are pictures of the cars that raced in this story on the History Listen website. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. I'm so glad I did it. It was fantastic. I'll never forget it. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.